So yeah, I'm sorry I wasn't here last week. I was very sick. I, well, I wasn't super sick. I had no voice, so that wasn't going to work. So thank you, Bob, for, uh, for filling in last minute. So I woke up Saturday morning with like 10% of a voice. And my kids who are with their Nana and Papa this weekend, uh, for Nana and Papa weekend, which is a really wonderful break for us, uh, they thought it was really funny when I was trying to scold them with 10% of my voice. Like, you go clean your room. It wasn't very effective parenting, so. So this morning, uh, <coughs> I actually had to remember what we were, what I was trying to talk about through the Advent season, the correlation between different stories in the Bible, particularly as the kind of the early church is emerging in the book of Acts and how Christmas relates to that, and maybe it doesn't relate. But I, I think there's a pretty strong case for a correlation between all these stories in the Bible as they kind of intersect with the emergence of the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ and the Spirit. And I was like, oh, I, I, you know, I, I wasn't here for Bob's sermon and I don't remember, like, what was I doing? So I went back in time and I was like, oh, right, 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 right. It's Acts 2, this, uh, the Spirit indwelling, and kind of Jesus dies on the cross and it's this terrible death and he's resurrected and he comes back and he promises a helper and the helper is actually going to be the spirit of god and so the disciples and the apostles they gather in probably the upper room of the temple and they're praying and they're waiting earnestly and then a sound of a mighty wind rushes in and there's tongues of fire that appear over their head and they begin to speak in other languages that they don't know as the spirit gave them utterance and they're filled with the courage and boldness and these like image bearers of God become alive. And the recreating of a new people takes place. As if God has gone back to Adam and breathed life back into his people. And there's a new humanity. And so not just Jesus is now God incarnate, we now are image bearers of the living God, of those who follow him and have the spirit. And so the first marker of the, of the, of the church isn't the building, it's not the, the, though the song is very beautiful. It's the gathering of spirit indwelled beings, image bearers of God, the life and breath of God in us as people gathered, collected. So the book of Acts is a really interesting book because Luke isn't trying to write a theology. He's not theologizing this story. He's just telling what happens. And I think it's really important that we pause and say, okay, well, I'm not trying to pull out ideas to, to weave them together to make a dogma. I'm actually just, what, what's happening in real time as this thing inbreaks? The first thing that happens is Peter's filled with a new boldness and he feels like it's an instant kind of Oh my goodness, now I understand. Now I get what Jesus, his whole life, the whole arc of his life, the, this, the Davidic covenant and this whole thing of Israel makes sense to Peter. And he stands on this, this pedestal and he preaches to the people who are gathered for the day of Pentecost and all these Jews that had come around, now they are hearing the gospel in real time. An, an explanation. And so thousands come to know Jesus that day and thousands are filled with this spirit of God. It's remarkable. 
And because the people, the 120 in the room could now speak other languages, they're actually telling these people that have come from all over the known world about Jesus in their own tongue. So you kind of move through Genesis, you see, well, there's this new kind of Babylon, kind of the Tower of Babel. There's a new, a recollection of language to share this beautiful message of reconnecting with God through the Spirit. So Luke, you follow Luke along, and you're like, okay, well, what happens after that? Something actually very simple. And Ron's not here today, but Ron used this word a couple weeks ago that I, I just locked in my head that, I think is profound. He uses this word, uh, Ron Smith, he's on our board, and he said this word overflow. Actually, it's like our, our cup. Our cup is overflowing. Out of the abundance of our humanity filled up with God, there's this overflowing that happens. And this thing then naturally takes place. If you want to turn your Bibles, you can actually go to Acts 2. It's one of those things that, uh, you know, Mark is really sneaky about. I've told you that a lot. Luke, I think, again, he's not writing a theology. He's not trying to, to like give a dictatorial kind of dogma of the Christian life. He's just telling you a story. And it's almost innocuous. If you, if you read it too quickly, you'll miss it. You won't see it. And Acts 2, the end of Acts 2, verse 43. <coughs> lots, of ha lots has happened there. Peter's just kind of finished his big, his big preach. Everyone around was in awe, all those wonders and signs done through the apostles. And all the believers lived in a wonderful harmony. The believers now are the people spirit-filled, filled up with God. The spirit of Jesus living inside of them. That's a mark of a believer. They're living in wonderful harmony. What is harmony? This morning I was listening and I could hear the collective voice of all of you singing together. It's beautiful. It's like a, a remarkable thing. Music, harmony, convergence. And the overflowing of their harmony is they held everything in common. They sold whatever they owned and pooled their resources so that each person's need was met. They followed the daily discipline of worship in the temple, followed by meals at home. Every meal, a celebration. Exuberant and joyful as they praised God. The overflow of the spirit indwellingness of their re-human beingness was harmony. People began to see other people and merge life together in harmony. Not one voice louder than the other. And then they, out of this overflow, they responded and said, well, I, I see you now, probably for the first time, and I see your need. And so they, I have excess. I can give out of my abundance in harmony. There's no effort here. They're not trying. They just are. 
spirit-filled beings, filled up, seeing each other, probably for the first time, truly, beyond the limitations of their constructs and their ideas and the culture, the pressure of existing in a Jewish slash Roman world, all the latent, difficult, heavy burdens that we've, they've been thrust upon them of who is important and who is not, gone. Harmony, need, sacrifice, effortless sacrifice. And then they, they meet in the temple, naturally they're Jews, they're like, Jewish Christians are merging, they're like, well, that's where we meet with the temple, it makes sense. And then they go home. So now they're bringing this into their homes, people that are not a part of their family, not a part of their biological network, gathering in each other's homes to eat. <laughs> to eat. Faith and I had this beautiful this conversation this morning around the groundingness of food. Of just how easy it is to connect to people through mealing together. No one asked them to do this. Jesus didn't say, by the way, when I leave and I give you the spirit, this is what you need to do. Make sure you eat together. They just did. And what was it? It was a celebration. And it was joyful. Here's the overflow of that experience. Again, this is not, no one's trying, right? No one's like, boy, I want to be a good Christian. How do I be a good, well, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm not going to do this, and I'm not going to go here. No one's trying to be a good follower of Jesus. This is the overflow of their spirit in being. This is Jesus emanating out of them. This is, this is the byproduct of it. Because they're kind of railing against the culture. This is not how people lived. People didn't spontaneously give of their stuff. We could, we could cross-correlate our culture today. How often is it that wealthy people give up what they have in excess to give to people who don't? Is that how our culture works? No, certainly not in Roman times. In fact, what was worse in Roman times is that if you were wealthy, you were somehow part of some divine plan, that you were better than. People that didn't have money were subhuman. So to cross that barrier of like, wow, you're divinely given wealth. You're div you're, you're, you must be super important as a person. At least we have that. We don't look at people as subhuman so much anymore. But in Roman times, they did. You're a slave. You're not even a person. You're a woman. You really don't count. You're a child. I don't care about you until you're a grown man who can do something for me. So these people are spontaneously giving. No one's asking them to, and it is entirely countercultural. So it's funny what Luke says next. He says, people in general liked what they saw. I think that's a funny line. People on the outside are like, hey, whoa, what are you doing? What are you doing over there? eating together, sharing with people. What is that? That's really simple, but that is really remarkable. 
what are you doing? I like that. Naturally, every day their number grew as God added those who were saved. Now, a theological mind could get in some trouble here and say, well, God has preordained these people to be saved. He brought in this fold, and I want to say, stop. Follow Luke's narrative. Follow his sequence that Luke is telling us what is happening in real time. People are spirit-filled. They see Jesus, and because they see Jesus and they know Jesus, they see others, and because they see others, they see need, and because they see need, they give, and because they give, they, co they collect, and they meal, and they story, and it's good. And a new culture is born. And people on the outside say, that's really cool. What is that? I want to be a part of that. Well, in order to be a part of that, you just have to be able to accept Jesus. In order to be a part of that, you have to then see other people the way Jesus sees other people. Now, that may be hard to do. You may not be willing to do that. So then you can't really participate. God grows their numbers because of this thing that's happening. But it's not over. Stuff keeps going on. It's just emerging culture keeps developing. You can turn to Acts 4. As the byproduct, kind of, as this thing kind of grows. 4 verse 20, uh, verse 32. Stuff's happened in between. You can read it at home if you want. I'm just highlighting, and I, and I hate doing that. I hate jumping ahead. I hate going through the story. But I, I wanted to show you the subtext of what's going on as Luke is telling us. Verse 432, the whole congregation of believers was united as one, one heart, one mind. Whose heart? Oh, you're whispering. You can tell me. Whose heart? Jesus' heart. Whose mind? Jesus' mind. I think if there's a way to describe heartness and mindness together, maybe there is, I don't know. I think Luke would probably use that term. I don't think you can separate those two things. I think our language is insufficient. Heart and mind united, congruent, together. Jesus' heart and mind. They didn't claim ownership of their possessions. No one said, that's mine, you can't have it. They shared everything. The apostles gave powerful witness, or slash story, to the resurrection of the master. And grace was on all of them. And so it turned out that not one person was needy. Those who owned fields or houses sold them and brought, and brought the price of those sale to the apostles made an offering of it. The apostles then distributed according to each person's need. Now I want to pause there too because Luke is telling us as the overflow of what's happening, this supercharged kind of new emerging culture. I don't think that then you can make a dogma out of this, that all people in this room should sell everything they have and put it in a big pool and Jen and I will decide what to do with it. That's not what Luke is telling us. There's actually an interesting fact, that I think that you can almost correlate that it was actually so probably overcharged that they gave all of their money away and in a couple of years they were poor and Paul had to come back and give them a love offering because they had no money. 
So that's not what Luke is telling us to do. What Luke is de demonstrating for us is that when the Spirit indwells, these are the overflowing actions of the Christian community, the emerging Christian community, this Jesus-following community. And here's the interesting part, full circle. I've been with you guys for almost a year now. Full circle. And I thought this, I wasn't going to read this until I read it. I was like, this morning, I was like, oh, that's actually really, really cool. Joseph called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of comfort. A Levite born in Cyprus, sold the field that he owned, brought the money, and made an offering of it to the apostles. So Barnabas, this guy named Joseph, was really named Barnabas. He's called the son of comfort, or he's like an encourager, a really encouraging guy. He had a field. He had excess, and he sold it, and he brought it to the apostles, and he gave the money to the apostles, and that's really, that's really cool. So something happened where he found Jesus in this moment, and he was like, in this movement, he gets swept up in this emerging kingdom. He's like, I want to be a part of that. Barnabas, then it doesn't stop there for him. Luke is telling us because it's going to go on with, with Paul and whatever, but if you can remember way, way, way back, Barnabas does something else remarkable in this story. He goes on a missionary journey with Paul with someone else whose name was John Mark. And John Mark fails. John Mark leaves. He, he, he breaks down in the middle of this journey. He's like, I want to go home. I can't do this, Paul. And Paul says, boof, get out of here, you loser, you failure. You're not strong enough to be part of the, the witness of Jesus. And Barnabas says, no. Barnabas sees Mark, or who Mark is and can be. And in a very short time, Mark then does what? Writes the gospel of Mark, which then becomes what? I think, some scholars think, the first written down pen story of Jesus, which then refills this whole movement towards Jesus, spirit-filled people. And there's a really interesting little note that, that Luke gives us. So as we come into the Christmas season, it's, it's no wonder, I gotta switch Bibles here, because uh, someone ripped a page out of Luke in my Bible. And that was funny, because it was like, trying to read, but I wasn't really paying attention, just trying to read, but the words weren't lining up. And I was like, what is, like, I don't, what's going on? He's like, oh, the whole page is gone. So the third of the page is gone, so as I'm flipping, I'm actually reading in between pages, whatever. I thought it was more funny than that, but. <laughs> what does that have to do with Christmas? What are you doing, Amos, where are you going? Man, you're all over the place. If you go to Luke, this is the same guy, same story. Right in the beginning of his, of his first chapter of his two-part series, he talks about the shepherds. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them and said, The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they are filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a 
a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you that you will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And then suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to, them, to the, those who he is pleased. So the shepherds are out in that field, this ragtag bunch of nobodies. And my dad loves the Christmas story and he's, he's like ragged on me for years about this, that when you think of like shepherds in the Christmas story, what do you usually think of? Shout it out, you can tell me. What do you think? Imagine, just tell me, who do you see? You see shepherds in the Christmas story. Farmers. Farmers. What age are they usually in your mind? Young? 40s, 30s? Well, maybe you're already smarter than me. I don't know. Probably. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I see that hand. Shepherds in those days are the, the nobodies. They're the young kids. They're like 10, 11, 12 years old. They're from low-ranking systems, even in Jewish culture. Or they're the old men who can't, have never gotten it together. And shepherds would have to go out for days on end on their own by themselves. They had to live with their flock out in the wilderness. They're excellent survivalists, but they had no place in society. They probably smelled. They had no social manner. They're really as, as, as low as you could probably go on the structure of society. And yet, they get this pronouncement in the fields. And profoundly, the angel says to the shepherds, says, don't be afraid. Here is good news of great joy because someone has been born that's going to change the world. And then they, they, these angels... The multitude sings out a reflective story, a reflective history that comes from Isaiah. They're not singing a story that they made up on their own, though they probably could. They're singing a history to these shepherds that Isaiah, hundreds of years before, through a murky vision of the future, had this divinely inspired vision of that one day people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, a light on them has shined. You've multiplied the nations, you've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy of the harvest, as they are glad when they divided the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff on his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire because for unto us a child is born to us a son is given and the government shall be on his shoulder and he will be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father the prince of peace isaiah was talking about jesus the shepherds hear about Jesus. The spirit indwelling us is Jesus. The abundance and the overflow of our life expressed in community is a result 
of Jesus. And it's an invitation to rest in the joy of the Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that through a broken world and through a broken system, you emerged as a tiny babe, that you bring peace, that you usher in a new way of being in the world. I thank you that you share that spirit with us, your spirit, that we can be filled up with you to see others as you see them, to see ourselves as you see us. I thank you that that is loving joy, overflowing, abundant joy, grace. And I pray as we continue to move along as a community, reflectors of you, that we would continually take up the invitation to come under you as the Prince of Peace and live in your overwhelming joy. I thank you for these for this day in your name.